Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for our special meditation this morning is found in John 6. Our gospel reading is printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear fellow saints and servants of God, please take a moment to think about how you would answer the question that I'm about to put to you. You have just met someone whom you think you could turn into a friend, and in conversation it comes up that you are a Christian, and this person says, you know, I could almost be a Christian myself. I really like a lot of what what Jesus taught, and and I think he's a great model to follow. But I, I trust science. And today we know so much more about how the world works than people did back when the Bible was written. So I've got a problem with the miracles, the healings, the feedings, all of it. There's just no sense believing in a religion that asks you to set reality aside and replace it with myths and legends like the miracles. So how would you respond? Chances are, the longer you have been a Christian, especially if you grew up learning the stories of Christ's miracles at at bedtime and in Sunday school, the more you are going to sputter and stall out in trying to respond to such skepticism. Now, obviously, getting angry with your new friend for daring to question the truth of the Gospels is not going to be a positive witness or convince him or her of anything. And a defensive... Well, well, that's what the Bible says, so you just have to believe it. It doesn't matter if you think it makes sense. would just give the impression that being a Christian means shutting your brain off, which is not at all the case. So what will you do with the miracles? It's not just a question for fine-tuning your witness to unbelievers. It's also one we need to answer for our own faith because none of us are immune to the pressures of our society's glorification of science or the appeal of human pride that wants to sit in judgment on God's Word. Of course, one approach to the whole issue, actually a rather popular one, would be to just try to ignore or downplay miracles. Maybe try to present a Christianity without those things that challenge modern ideas about what is reasonable or scientific and and hope that what's left is enough for saving faith. But here's the thing. Downgrading the miracles is downgrading the one who does the miracles. So exactly what kind of gospel do you have left when you've stripped Jesus of his divine powers. And even more importantly, there is one miracle that is at the core and foundation of the Christian faith, without which that faith is pointless and powerless, Christ's resurrection from the dead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you are still in your sin. Now, of course, for the skeptic, this is often the whole point of denying the miracles of Scripture. It enables him or her to deny the miracle worker 
and any obligation to take Christ's claims or works seriously. And so having an idea what you will do with the miracles becomes very important for all of us if we are going to take seriously our call to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So first, let's address the fairly common idea that science proves that miracles aren't possible. Therefore, the miracles of Jesus or any others in the Bible cannot really have happened. Someone who makes a statement like that is bad at science, confused, or is consciously avoiding the real issue. Good science, you see, takes all the data that you have about something and then draws a conclusion from that data. Bad science starts with a conclusion. Miracles are not possible, and then works only with the data that support that conclusion. Given that we have a Bible full of evidence of miracles, anyone willing to look at it honestly will find that the data leads to the conclusion that miracles are possible. There is, however, a kernel of truth in the appeal to science. Since science deals with the world's natural characteristics and laws, something supernatural, which a miracle is by definition, is really not something that science can prove or disprove. But that doesn't mean the Bible's miracles have no basis in fact. It just means that science is not the right tool for testing them. The argument against miracles is usually presented as one from science, but it is really one that is coming from a philosophical presupposition that has nothing to do with evidence or facts. And it is history that is the right subject area for studying miracles. Consider the records and their reliability as historical documents and then draw a conclusion about whether those events happened or not. And since the books of the Bible, in particular the four Gospels that tell of Christ's miracles and resurrection, since they are indeed historical or reliable historical documents, their testimony has to be taken seriously and ought to be believed. A second thing to understand about miracles is what they were for. In most cases, they were examples of a loving and powerful Lord in compassion meeting the needs of desperate people. Manna provided to the Israelites in the desert. A widow's only son restored to life. Lepers cured. Demons dispossessed. The, the lame made to walk. Storms stilled. But other miracles were more about God making statements the ten plagues visited on Egypt, Jonah in the great fish, a tree withered darkness in the middle of day. And what this shows us is that truly the primary purpose of the Bible's signs and wonders was one of confirmation, to show and certify the truth of an important message. Pharaoh, let my people go. Israel, trust your Lord. 
and in the Gospels. Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to Him. Repent, trust, and follow Him. The miracle of Christ's resurrection, of course, confirmed the most important message of all, that His suffering and death paid for all sins and defeated death so that those who believe in Him will rise and live eternally just as He, God's Son, rose and lives eternally. So clearly, Scripture's signs and wonders are not just minor events or or throwaway details that we can take or leave depending on how reasonable we think they are. They are instead a very big deal and a great comfort and confidence for every Christian and, and strong evidence to consider for every unbeliever. What then do we learn from the feeding of the 5,000? That this was a particularly important event and miracle is, is shown by the fact that it appears in all four of the Gospels. Pay attention to what it teaches us about Jesus and what he wants us to do with what we learn. So as we encounter the story, Jesus is about two-thirds of the way through his ministry. His suffering and death in Jerusalem is a little more than a year away. The curious crowds seeking the, the marvel of his miracles have become such a distraction to him that he decides to, to get away. And he takes his disciples to a remote place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to be alone with them for, for rest and, and for instruction. But in the end, they, they don't get much time for that. Because the crowds figure out where they are and and come to him on foot. And when Jesus sees them, he knows what he is going to do. But he also sees this as a time to test his disciples and, and teach them a new lesson about what it means to follow him. So he asks Philip, where, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? There were no towns close by. They were in a remote place on purpose. And it was obvious that the people in the crowd had had not planned ahead and brought picnic dinners. Philip looked at the approaching crowd and did a quick mental calculation. 200 denarii, eight months' wages worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to, to have just a little. But it wasn't quite late yet, so, so all the disciples had time to consider what their options might be while, while Jesus healed the sick and, and taught the people. Eventually, though, as the day reached its end, the twelve came to Jesus and said, send the crowds away so, so they can go to the villages and, and buy themselves some food. And he replied, no, that's not necessary. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We can imagine the disciples' consternation and confusion. They hadn't packed dinner either. And and even if they had, how could they feed so many people? They check their resources and come up empty, but they, they overlook the most important one, their master. Finally, someone who did plan ahead is identified, or maybe it was his mother. And Andrew reports to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What is that for so many people? 
And Jesus says, bring them here and have the people sit down. And then Jesus does, unasked, what he had wanted the disciples to ask him to do. He shows compassion and he demonstrates his power. He feeds the crowd of well over 5,000 people with those five loaves and two fish. Imagine the amazement as the disciples begin dividing the dinner up among themselves to distribute it and find that five loaves became ten, ten became twenty, twenty became two hundred, and the the fish multiplied the same way. Imagine how the crowd slowly catches on to what is happening as the baskets are passed among them and each person has as much to eat as they want. And then consider how any thought of, did that really happen? is answered by the collection of leftovers that fills 12 baskets. The people are suitably amazed and recognize that this miracle is a huge deal. Never before had they seen something that affected not just one person at a time like the healings, but so many at once. Undoubtedly, the people remember how how Moses, though it was really God, had fed Israel in the wilderness, but, but opportunistically, they also think how wonderful it would be to have someone like this as their king, who could supply them food to eat without their having to plan or work or do anything for it other than show up. So having rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah prophet Moses had promised would come to them, they wrongly planned to make him bread king of Israel, the one God never intended Jesus to be. And he cannot afford that distraction. It's not what he came for, and the time is not right. So he withdraws from them again, by himself, humbly refusing Take the throne his people offer him. But what then was the lesson? He never got to take his victory lap. What did Jesus want his disciples to do with the miracles and the miracle worker? He wanted them and us to know his nature, to know that he was full of compassion for human beings, willing to serve them to the full extent of his ability, which was extensive, even though he had every earthly reason to ignore their needs in order to attend to his own. And Jesus wanted them and us to recognize him not only as some nice guy teaching interesting moral or spiritual lessons, but as the truly divine Messiah, with all the power and authority that was rightly His as the Son of God from all eternity. And most of all, Jesus wanted them and us to put all of that together and say, Hey, When we have a need, 
we should bring it to our Lord and ask him to meet it because we know he wants to and we know he can. This teaches us that seemingly insurmountable problems. How can we feed so many? How can I go on like this? How can my loved one ever come to faith? Seemingly insurmountable problems are precisely the things that we should bring to Jesus. And that often when we are told, you do it, what that means is you ask God to do it. And this most certainly is not just or mostly about serving our own needs. Even more, it is mostly, it's the, one of the most powerful way that we have of serving our neighbor, meeting his needs, doing God's will in the world. Exercise your faith in Christ in prayer. Trust his mercy and his power. And if all of this is true of our needs for this life, how much more can we be sure that it's true of our needs for the next life? That was the whole purpose of Christ's coming. To save us from our sins and take us to heaven. We have a Lord who is gracious and compassionate, full of mercy, and He loved sinners so much, He sacrificed Himself on the cross to gain us forgiveness and to qualify us for paradise. Yesterday here we observed how our brother Gordon's faith took hold of this gospel to bring him to Jesus. And this morning, through the miracle of baptism, God brought our new sister, Irene, into the family that shares that faith. With a Lord like our Lord, we never need to worry about our life, fear death, or wonder if we've done enough to please God and gain a place with Him in paradise because Christ has done everything for us. So what will we do with Him, with the miracle worker? And what will we do with His miracles? We will certainly not hem and haw or ignore or try to explain away the miracles when they seem inconvenient or uncomfortable to faith. Because that, that misses the whole point and leads to a Christless Christianity, a tragic and futile oxymoron. We will believe the miracles. Not only that he did them, but also that they are evidence of his love and power put to work for us sinners. And we will learn, too, to exercise that faith in every need and in every moment and trust the miracle worker to answer when we ask for mercy. Jesus is our priceless treasure, purest pleasure and truest friend. Trust him for all things forever. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.